which is rampant which is a part of our culture now, uh, is that I, I'll do my own thing and I'll decide what's right for me. It, it is not much different than, I want to be careful with that. It's not much different than individualism saying that I get to decide for myself. And there's this, there's this um, troublesome um, issue in Romans 1 or 2 where uh, the question comes up is, by what will you be judged? And it's pretty clear that we'll be judged by the standard we use to judge others. Now, I know about myself, but you guys are in trouble. I'm just saying. Um, and so that, that self-criteria becomes that by which I will stand before God. In the back. You just said the word self. Uh, I spell, spell sin as S-I-N. Self-seeking. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, people see, do it the way they see is the right way to do it, which is usually um, self-interpretive. Here, it, it takes care of my needs, what I want to happen. Um, so, so do you think that happens today? And what's that look like? I have this, I have a favorite group. Um, looking around, most of you won't know who they are, but it's a group called Bastille. And they sing, anybody know who they are? One, I like this, okay. Um, they have a song about Pompeii, about the crumbling of the city, the walls coming down. I'll just close my eyes and pretend this isn't happening. And they have this very disturbing, I wasn't going to play it for you at the time, but um, have this very disturbing line. So what do we do first? The rubble or the sin? So my question is, what would be the Old Testament's answer to the question? Would we take care of the rubble or the sin? shouldn't be a trick question. It's pretty clear God says the sin first. Take care of the sin. Think of those stories where the armies went out and they got beaten. And they came back and they said something's wrong. And so God tells them take care of the sin and then you'll win at the battle. So it wasn't, it wasn't load up with more troops, go get them, and then we'll talk about what you did wrong. It was take care of the sin um, and, and, and um, if you were in first service this morning, Josh talked about that in the book of Daniel. It said, O king, take care of the sin and then be merciful to me. And there was an order there. And I think the Old Testament looks at that, I think, pretty clearly in terms of um, what we should be doing. Now, I had a hand and I ran right over you. Sorry. <coughs> Do or don't? The dignity to choose. Is what yes. As, as being like him, I think. Yeah, we were meant to <coughs> sit on the throne side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think. Beast rule over us. It's pretty impressive, and there's lots of pieces to that image, whether it's ruling all of the earth 
which don't forget it has a shepherding responsibility in terms of the environment and the animal. I mean, all that goes with it. But there's a ruling over the earth. There's a um, relationships. I mean, it's a it's a big deal um, in terms of I'm going to make you like me because I want to have fellowship. Um, all right. Other thoughts? Yes. You know, you see how it started with Genesis, and then I think about today and think, well, that's the same thing. This keeps going over and over and over. And I think, well, why don't you just make us a little bit more like you? So we didn't miss up so much. Because it is just a continual. That, that's always my thought. Always your question? Yes. Yeah, yeah. like, why, why does it have to be so difficult for us to be. I mean, part of where human were made that way, is faith or selfish. I keep thinking, why didn't you make us a little bit more like that? Yeah, so let's be careful. Um, I, I think um, there is a... Remember, original creation was good. It was the shalom. It was peace. It was beautiful. It was all of those things. And there was a brokenness between here and there uh, that requires this uh, wounded deliverer. Which we don't know much about yet. Um, so, I want to be careful not to fall into a trap that says, God made me this way. He should have made me better. Um, I don't think you're saying that, but you know, I wish I wish he'd given me a little more so I don't sin. But it happened, and we now have a a qualitative differentiation from the beginning. I can't look back and say um, he made me this way. I can't. I'm not responsible somehow. So I want to be careful of that. Um, there. I don't think we're not responsible. But it seems like it's a continual pattern. I think it is a continual pattern. Yeah, and it seems to go kind of down, gets worse, yeah. starts over, gets worse. I mean, I think that is also in that cycle. Jackie? Well, if the change in humanity, um, after the sin, after we sin, after we rebel, so are we saying that the consequence of the sin caused the change? If we were created in the image of God that was good and perfect and so what caused the change? What caused the change? The decision by Adam and Eve. The the when they took when they said I can decide um, I think that broke the change. And then God separated from them. They got put out of the garden. Um, they set up a, um, they set up, a, he set up a boundary um, so they couldn't get back to the tree of life, which I have a Frisbee theory on that, just so you know. And that is so sin couldn't live forever. If the broken person came back and got eternal life, then he had, you know, I think he protected us from that, that bound um, how, how bad that break would be. 
uh, by not adding that to it. Um, so giving us the ability to choose opened the avenue for... I think it did. I think it did. Paul? The enterprise tradition has, uh, has in my, my experience, speak up. Gone, gone away from the uh, concept of original sin. You want to speak to that? Yeah, I do think I, we we have we have not um, embraced too strong a word. We have not seen the the impact of the teaching of original sin as strongly in the Church of Christ tradition. Um, and I think let, let's talk about that. I think that says everybody has been influenced by it. It means everybody's broken. I think it's it is it is uh, it has had ripples throughout time, eternity, and through all of our people. I mean, I think when when Paul writes about that, um, I think he's saying the damage done is bigger than you might think. Um, it's anchored back in the garden um, and long term and consequential um, as a result of that. And I think that's true. I think we've we have uh, we have minimized that. Thoughts? So, I mean, if you just take the progression, you know, God got real prescriptive and started over again and said, I'm going to start with a man, Abraham, and guess what? you got to do all of these things because I've let you make your own decisions, so I'm giving you this law, and it's going to tell you how to do everything almost every day and how you do it. Yeah. And we messed that up, too. Yeah. So, ultimately, you know, he just said, I'm giving you Jesus, and that's going to take care of it. I think he knew that way back here yeah. when we talked about the wounded deliverer. We going to be able to keep it. Yeah, yeah. But there was, uh, uh, people talk about uh, Revelation given to us as progressive. That he is revealed gradually more and more um, throughout time to the point that Paul could write, um, keeping the law couldn't have saved you. Yeah, there's a there's a real uh, disclosure with Abraham in that God saved him before he did anything. His That's right. Grace, his grace came upon oh, him. Oh, the grace thing. Yeah, before he, gets he yeah. demonstrated, even though he said, once he did attempt to uh, sacrifice Isaac, he said, yeah. "Now, now I really know." Yeah. But he had already chosen. Yeah. I know. Yeah. yeah. Before. Before. He makes a big point about before. I chose Abraham. All right, I need some help. Um, someone can help me. I've got to get to my next. Here we go. All right, I was just was in All right, I'm going to watch our next section. All right, so uh, another Frisbee theory. Um, the, there, I have read a ton of debates about what the book of Genesis is. Is it history? Is it literary? Is it poet? What is it? Is it a metaphor? Is it etc.? Here's what I think it is. I think it's a gospel. I think like we got the book of John, like we got Matthew, like we got Mark. I think the Hebrew people, the Israelites, got Genesis. And here's the best definition I could find of a gospel is it's a word from God himself. There's a warning of judgment in it. Now think of our Gospels. There are, there's, it centers on the Deliverer. 
there's a word of promise given, a hope, that includes the presence of God being there, and then a call for repentance and a trust of God. And so I think when you think about the book, now they don't say that in here, but I think when you think about the book of Genesis, I think it's a gospel. I, I frankly think I can take the Old Testament in, in my kind of way and, and see very similarities between the Old and the New. So I, I do see Genesis as a gospel. And so I do see Exodus as an Acts. This kind of a rolling out of the people and they get to Israel. I mean, uh, uh, I can, and the histories, I mean, I can see that as an Acts. I can see Isaiah to me as Romans. Um, I get to the end of the Old Testament and it sure looks like the book of Revelation because they got critters running all around the place up there. Um, and so I think there's a, God is telling a story, He's telling a gospel, um, as throughout the Old Testament that parallels very similar to what we see in the New Testament. All right, time's sake. Let's watch the second half of Genesis. The book of Genesis. In the first video, we saw how chapters 1 through 11 set up the basic storyline of the Bible. God has created all things, and he makes humans in his image to rule the world on his behalf. The humans choose sin and rebellion, and so the world spins out of control into violence and death, all leading up to the rebellion and scattering of the people in Babylon. And so the big question is, what is God going to do to rescue and redeem his world? Well, out of that scattering at Babylon, the author traces a genealogy of just one family that leads eventually to a man named Abram, later known as Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12 opens up a whole new movement in this world. God calls Abraham to leave his home and go to the land of Canaan, which God says will become his one day. And in that land, God promises to make Abraham into a great nation, to make his name great and to bless him. Now, these promises are connected back to earlier parts of the book. So Babylon had arrogantly tried to make a great name for itself, and that didn't go over very well. But God, in his generosity, is going to bestow a great name on this no-name guy, Abraham. And God's blessing of Abraham echoes all the way back to that original blessing God gave humanity in the beginning. So the question is, why is God going to bless Abraham and his family? And the last line of God's promise makes this clear. So that all the families of the earth will find God's blessing in you. Now this is key for understanding the whole rest of the biblical story. God's plan is to rescue and bless his rebellious world through Abraham's family. And this is why the whole rest of the Old Testament story is just going to focus on this one family, eventually called the people of Israel. This is also why Israel will later be called a kingdom of priests at Mount Sinai. God wants to use them to show all of the other nations what he's like. And ultimately, this is the promise that gets picked up by the later biblical prophets and poets who say that its fulfillment will come through Israel's messianic king, whose reign will bring justice and peace to all of the nations. Now at this point of the story, none of that's clear. You just have to keep reading and watch the promise develop. And so the rest of the book focuses on Abraham and his family. First, Abraham himself, then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and then Jacob's twelve sons. 
And the stories about each generation, they're united by two main themes. So first, each generation of Abraham's family is marked by repeated failure. They just keep making really bad decisions that mess up their lives and that put God's promise in jeopardy. However, God remains faithful to them. He keeps rescuing them from themselves and reaffirming his commitment to bless them and bless the nations through them despite their failings. So the Abraham stories. God had promised Abraham a huge family, but on two different occasions, he's afraid for his life because other men are attracted to his wife, and so he denies that he's even married to her, which creates, of course, all of these problems. And not only that, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they can't have children, and so Sarah arranges for Abraham to sleep with one of their servant girls, which also creates all of these problems in the family. But each time, God bails Abraham out. And in chapters 15 and 17, God even formalizes his promise to Abraham with an official commitment called the covenant. This is a classic scene. God invites Abraham to look up at the night stars and to count them. And he says, that's how numerous your family is going to be. And despite all of the odds, having no kids and no way to have any at the moment, Abraham looks up in the sky and simply trusts God's promise. And God responds by entering into a covenant with Abraham, promising that he will become a father of many nations, that God's blessing may come to the whole world. God asks Abraham to mark his family with a sign of the covenant, circumcision of all the male boys in the family. This is a symbol to remind them that the fruitfulness of their family is a gift from God. And so Abraham has lots of kids eventually, and he dies at a good old now, the Jacob stories play out these themes even more dramatically. From birth, Jacob lives up to the meaning of his name, which is deceiver. He cheats his brother Esau out of his inheritance and blessing, and he does it by deceiving his old blind father, no less, and then he just takes off. He goes on to take four wives, even though he really only loves one, Rachel, and this creates all of these rivalries in the family. The only thing that humbles Jacob is being deceived by his uncle Laban, who cheats him out of years of his life. The tables have finally turned. And so it's a humbled Jacob that returns to his homeland. In a very strange story, Jacob ends up wrestling with God as he demands that God bless him. Some things never really change, do they? However, God honors his determination, and he passes Abraham's blessing on to him. And he renames Jacob as Israel, which means wrestles with God. Notice this last part of the book, the story of Jacob's sons, where all the themes come to a head. Jacob loves his second to the youngest son, Joseph, more than any of the others, and he gives him this special jacket. And the ten older sons come to hate Joseph, and so they kidnap him, and they plan to kill him, but instead they decide to just sell him into slavery in Egypt, where he ends up in prison. Talk about family failure. But God is with Joseph. And he orchestrates Joseph's release from prison, and Pharaoh ends up elevating Joseph to second in command over all of Egypt. And so Joseph saves the nation of Egypt during a famine. And he also ends up saving his brothers and his family from starving to death. And so once again, you can see the folly and the sin of Abraham's family is met with God's faithfulness, who subverts even the evil of the brothers into an occasion to save life. And this is actually what Joseph says right near the end of the book. He says to his brothers, you all planned this for evil, but God planned it for good to save many lives. 
Now, these words are strategically placed at the end of the book because they summarize not only the story of Joseph and his brothers, but the book as a whole. From Genesis 3 onward, humans keep acting selfishly and doing evil, but this God is not going to leave his world to its own devices. He remains faithful and determined to bless people despite their failures. You can see this especially in how that mysterious promise about the descendant of the woman gets developed throughout the book. So remember, Genesis 3, God promised that this wounded victor would come and crush the snake and defeat evil at its source. And the author then connects this promise directly to the line of Abraham. This is a part of how God's going to bring his blessing to the nations. Now from Abraham, this promise gets connected to Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. And this is how. In an extremely important poem in chapter 49, an aging Jacob, he's on his deathbed, he wants to bless his twelve sons. And when he comes to Judah, Jacob predicts that Judah will become the tribe of Israel's royal leaders, and that one day a king will come who will command the obedience of all the nations and fulfill God's promise to restore the garden blessing to all of the world. And then after this, Jacob dies. And later, Joseph dies too. And the growing family remains in Egypt. And so the book of Genesis ends with all of these future hopes and promises left hanging and undeveloped. And it forces you to turn the page to see how it's all going to turn out. But for now, that's the book of Genesis. All right. What did you hear in that one? What thoughts? <coughs> Well, one thing is, once you get to Genesis 12, for the rest of the time, you're primarily reading about the unfolding story of the promise to Abraham and his people. Yeah. But all the other people of the world, we don't know their story. Right? That's right. You just see a snapshot occasionally of somebody who's a God-fearer or somebody who's standing in the way of the people of God. But God is still dealing with the rest of the world. Yeah, and it's, um, in, a, in a way, you're seeing, at least from a biblical point of view, the, um, I don't know the right word, let me pick seed, that God picks a people that He wants to show, demonstrate, influence the rest of the world. Uh, and that He is working through them to get that done on a broader scale. He hadn't gone away, but that's his a method that he's using to get there. Other thoughts? Yes? It gives you hope if you have a dysfunctional family. <laughs> Wait, if you have a dysfunctional family? <laughs> I got you, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it gives you hope in the midst of a dysfunctional family. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that there is a... Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Good observation. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's interesting also, Jacob, his name meaning deceiver, he was constantly tricking people. He was being tricked. And when God wrestled with him and changed his name to Israel, he finally, he was asked, what is your name? And he finally gave his real name, other than his brothers or blaming someone. He 
object of being acknowledged would be lost, which is a powerful lesson for us to finally own up to who we are and what just we are. To confess. Yes. To just say, this is who I am. This is who I am. Yeah. Other thoughts? I've gotten my time. Yes. The promises and blessings to come. Yeah, it, 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 it ends in a promise. It ends in a blessing, a hope. Even though they're still in Egypt, and we'll get to that next week. Um, even though they're still in Egypt, there's a promise of a hope. To in fact, the writer of Hebrews says, standing over in the New Testament, looking back, no one got the rest yet. No one got to that place yet. Uh, it's God's purpose and plan are still moving for all humanity. Yeah, that's right. Dysfunctional family or not. Alright, let's close with a prayer. Lord God Almighty, you watch over us. You are merciful. You are kind and bless us even when we don't deserve it. We understand the word grace evermore. We pray through Jesus. Amen. Thank you.